0: For your very kind introduction and thank you very much for your kind invitation. It's a pleasure being here in the lunchtime discussion group. Uh, my presentation today is based on an article I've recently finished, which examines, as the title suggests, historical titles, historic rights, and the law of the sea in the light of the South China Sea arbitration, and this is the presentation, the outline of my presentation, which is based on the structure of my article, so I'll try actually to fit as many issues that I've raised in my article as possible in the presentations, inevitably some issues actually might might not have time to raise them, but hopefully they will come up in the Q&A sessions at the end of my presentation. So I'll start with an overview of the South China Sea Arbitration and the dispute and the decision of the Tribunal, especially with respect to the relations between historic claims and the Law of the Sea Convention, which was the main focus of the Tribunal in this respect. Then I'm going to identify certain types of historic rights. Uh, on the basis of um, arguments by litigants in, the, uh, in maritime delimitation cases before international courts and tribunals and then discuss the contemporary relevance with reference to this case law. Then I'm going to have a brief reference to requirements for the establishment of historic rights and historical titles. This was not a major issue before the uh, tribunal, so I'm going to have some brief reference to that. And finally, I'm going to have um, some comments on the scope and nature of the optional exception to compulsory jurisdiction on the basis of Article 298 and specifically disputes involving historical titles. Just to start deep, uh, with the overview of the dispute, the Philippines instituted arbitral proceedings in, uh, in January 2013 against China under the compulsory jurisdiction of the Law of the Sea Convention and Annex 7. Um, the main issues raised by the, by ta- by the Philippines in its um, claims were the legal basis of maritime rights and entitlements in the South China Sea the status of certain maritime features and the lawfulness of certain actions by China in the South China Sea. Um, As you all know, China rejected the uh, jurisdiction of the tribunal, did not participate in the proceedings and after the delivery of both awards it said that it is not going to accept the awards or the validity of the awards, they are both null and void. Um, with respect to the main issue that we're going to be discussing today, which is the legal basis for maritime entitlements, you see that the statement of claim of the Philippines notification refers to pers- uh, respective rights and obligations of the parties in the water, seabed, and maritime features of the South China Sea. Uh, it's asked the uh, Tribunal to um find that these are governed only by the law of the Convention and then sign as claims based on its nine dash line are inconsistent with the Convention and therefore invalid. As you can see, initially in the statement of claim there was no reference to historic claims or historic rights or historical titles. The Philippines clarified its position in the first submission points uh, that it submitted with a memorial in the jurisdictional phase. So it asked the tribunal to find that China's maritime entitlements in the South China Sea, like those of the Philippines, may not extend beyond those permitted by the Law of the Sea Convention. And finally, there is some clarification to the relationship between the nine dash line and historic rights, that China's claims to sovereign rights and jurisdiction and to historic rights with respect to the maritime areas of the South China Sea within the framework of the so-called nine dash line, are contrary to the Convention and without lawful effects. Oh and the maps you cannot really see them. But what appears here is the nine dash line. This is the first time the map on the yeah, I can point the map on the left hand side, and I'm sorry actually I think the resolution was not high enough. These are from the um, awards of the tribunal. You can see actually this is the South China Sea and this is the nine dash line. This is the first time in 1948 that China produced formally and officially this map that showed not 9 but 11 dashes. In, the, uh, in 1953, it eliminated the two dashes, actually, that you can see here, in the Gulf of Tonkin for various reasons, but it didn't explain uh, why. And this is the, despite the fact that in 1948, as I mentioned, it was the first time that China produced officially this map. This map had been used in unofficial cartography of Chinese uh, cartographers in the 30s. Um, and this is the map. Again, you can see that this is the nine-dash line, or the U-shaped line, or the cow tank line, as they've referred to it sometimes in China. It was the first time that it communicated the map in, the, it's, 20, in its 2009 um, not-verbal to the, against, <coughs> the protest against the submission of Malaysia and Vietnam to the Committee of the uh, Limit of the Continental Shelf. Um, The problem with the U-shaped line, the nine dash line, is that China has not clarified actually the claim that it has made in the South China Sea. So we don't really know what the link is between the U-shaped line and historic rights, or what exactly actually the claim is in the waters of the South China Sea on the basis of uh, Chinese statements. Different scholars have um, speculated about the legal relevance of the U-shaped line. They've said that it refers only to the islands in the South China Sea in terms of sovereignty over the islands. If they've speculated that it might refer actually to the waters as well in terms actually of jurisdiction and sovereign rights. Or they, some um, scholars have even referred to this USAP line as a line the, uh, of maritime delimitation between the uh, jurisdiction of China and the other littoral states. So again, there is confusion in terms actually of the argument by China with respect to historic rights um, and the USAP line. China has referred to historic rights and especially to um, in its EZ law where it found that the provisions of this law shall not affect the historic rights enjoyed by China, but again it didn't clar- clarify where these historic rights are. In a number of statements, especially related to the tribunal, it referred to its uh, sovereign rights and jurisdictions which are supported by abundant historical and legal evidence or that the claims of China in the South China Sea are formed over a long course of history. So again, it doesn't clarify what kind of historic rights. The tribunal found that despite this lack of clarity with respect to the scope of the disputes, um, because China has not clarified the meaning of the nine dash line, this doesn't prejudice the actual existence of a dispute. And this is from the award on jurisdiction in October 2015. It, however, found that the the uh, scope of the dispute relates to the interaction between the law of this convention and another instrument or body of law, including the question of whether rights arising under another body of law were, or were not preserved by the convention. And the way they phrased the dispute also relates to how the Philippines presented its claim. The main argument by the Philippines was what any kind of historic rights that China might have had before its ratification of the Law of the Sea Convention have been superseded by the uh, Law of the Sea Convention. So this is the main argument that it made. Supplementary, it said actually that uh, China had never had historic rights, but the main argument was that the Law of the Sea Convention has um, superseded and prevails over any previous historic rights. In the jurisdiction phase, it found that the nature of, um, in order to examine the, uh, the question that it raised. The tribunal had to ascertain the nature of such historic rights and whether they are covered by the exclusion from jurisdiction on historic base and historical titles in Article 298. And this is because in 2009, um, China had filed a declaration regarding the um, uh, exception of uh, the compulsory jurisdiction of the law of the sea Convention with respect to historic base and historical titles. So in the jurisdiction phase, it reserved the decisions on its jurisdiction for the merits. And the first thing that the tribunal did in the merits, and I think that's also one of the important elements of the tribunal, it tried to uh, explain what this historic claim by China was. So it referred to Chinese state, uh, statements, to Chinese legislations, Chinese practice in the South China Sea, and it found that China is committed to respect both freedom of navigation and overflight. China on a number of occasions has said that it will never uh, infringe upon freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, and it has not done so. So it found that on the basis of China's conduct, the Chinese claim refers to rights over the living. And non-living resources within the 9 9 line, and this does not relate to other internal waters or territorial sea. So it doesn't regard actually the South China Sea as territorial sea or internal waters. So it doesn't have raised; uh, it has not raised the claim of historic waters, but it refers to it as kind of historic claims to the living and non-living resources. And this is how the tribunal phrased the question that was. That uh, it, it answered in the merits award. So, to what extent the law of this convention allow for the preservation of the rights to living and non-living resources, and to what extent these um, uh, rights, historic rights to living and non-living resources, are inconsistent with the provision of the convention? And this is, this is going to be actually the main question I'm going to answer with respect, actually, to what the tribunal found in the merits award in July last year. The uh, tribunal accepted the the claims by the Philippines. It found that uh, um, when China ratified the Law of the Sea Convention and when the Law of the Sea Convention entered into force. Any kind of historic rights it had were superseded, both as a matter of law but also as a matter of facts, between the Philippines and China. And this was because of the limits of the maritime zone provided for by the Convention. So the main argument, the the main findings, was that only those pre existing rights that are expressly provided by Article 10 on historic base, and Article 15, on the delimitation of the territorial sea and potential circumstances with respect to historical titles, are not incompatible with the law of this Convention and are therefore preserved. And this is the reasoning why the Tribunal found so. It started by invoking Article 311 which relates to the relation between the Law of the Convention and previous international agreements and conventions, and it also had some reference to Article 30 on the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties with respect to the application of successive treaties relating to the same subject matter, and it found that these provisions also apply not only with respect to the relation between the Law of the Convention and previous agreement, but also with respect to the Law of the Convention and pre-established historic rights despite the fact that these rights did not take the form of an agreement. And I find this problematic because this provision specifically refers to the relationship between international treaties and not between international treaties and pre-established rights as part of custom international law, as I will show in a minute, historic rights are. So it found actually that because of these provisions any incompatible provisions of previous regimes have been superseded and are incompatible with the law of the Sea Convention and therefore the tribunal as you can see from Article 293 cannot apply this, um, these provisions because they are incompatible with the Convention. It also continued and examined the regime of maritime zones established by the Law of the Sea Convention and it found that on the basis of the provisions on the AZ and the continental shelf and the explicit allocation of rights over living and non-living resources to the coastal state, this demonstrates that there was no intention of the drafters of the of the Law of the Sea Convention to continue the operation of pre existing historic rights. Any pre existing historic rights will be in conflict with the specific allocation of rights over living and non living resources attributed to the coastal states. Uh, it also accepted the third. Um, element of the tribunal's reasoning was the uh, an argument raised by the Philippines concerning the comprehensiveness of the regula- regulatory regime of the law of the sea convention. It found it referred to the preamble that the law of the sea convention and that was the intention of the draft the drafters was to settle all issues related to the law of the sea and establish a legal order for the seas and referred to the famous um, um, statement by the president of um, UNCLOS Plus Three, and the, by the Law of the Sea Convention was to uh, function as a constitution for the oceans and then um, ensure actually that there is comprehensiveness. And stability and order with respect to the um, um, maritime jurisdiction in the maritime zones. It also referred, in order to support this claim about the comprehensiveness of the regulatory regime, to Article 309. that no reservations or exceptions are allowed by the law of the Sea Convention. So it's 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 a package deal, actually, that the uh, the regime established by the law of the sea Convention, and there are no derogations on the basis of pre-established rights. Um. The Tribunal was right that the Law of the Sea Convention indeed has minimal reference to historical titles and no reference at all to historic rights. The only provision that the the concept of historical titles is mentioned is Article 15, which relates to the delimitation of the territorial sin, the fact actually that um, uh, within this framework historical titles can be taken into account, Article 10 with respect to historical base, and Article 298 with respect to the optional exception for compulsory jurisdiction. So there is no mention at all to what extent actually pre-established historic rights or any type of historic rights have been either superseded or have um, been preserved. There are some other provisions of the Law of the convention that have some reference to concepts that might relates the distant cousins to historic rights for example the con- the um, regime of uh, archipelagic waters article 47 and 51 with respect to traditional fishing rights of the immediately uh, uh, adjacent neighboring states article 62 with respect to the EZ access to surplus to nationals uh, of other states who have habitually fished in the zone and this mainly relate actually to fishing rights non exclusive fishing rights so i'm going to refer To that, a bit later today, and Article 7 with respect to straight baselines and taking into account long usage and economic interests. So, we see there is limited reference to historic rights in the Law of the Sea Convention. And indeed, the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, the intention of the Law of the Sea Convention was to um, establish a comprehensive regime with respect to the Law of the Sea and the Order of the Seas. But what the tribunal actually failed to take into account was the actual nature of historic rights. Historic rights and the main nature and his, uh, rationale of historic rights was not to disturb, but to preserve a continuous, long-established and accepted situation with a view to providing stability. So when the, the Tribunal said that the aim of the law of convention was to provide stability via this comprehensiveness of the regime, it's the same with the rationale of historic rights, which is to respect and not to disturb something that has been accepted between states For a very long time and um, I have a quote from Fitzmaurice from the 50s but there are other scholars that in that time referred to um, historic rights as prescriptive rights or as customary rights special customary rights so special rights differ from and in principle contrary to the ordinary rules of law applicable so there are exceptions to the general rules built up by particular states or states through a process of prescription the prescriptive rights, leading to the emergence of a users of customary or historic rights in favor of such, states, uh, such state or states. And again, we need to note that there is no explicit provision phasing out these pre-established rights. There is no inference from the travaux preparatoire of the Third Conference on the Law of the Sea that states intended to generally, in abstracto, um, waive all pre-established historic rights. So historic rights, in a way, are not incompatible with the law of the Convention, but they are exceptions recognized in general international law as long as the requirements are met. Um, uh, They refer, actually, to a lex specialis. They establish a particularized regime. And this regime actually cannot be waived in abstracto without specific reference to that. And I think there is some support of what I'm saying now and building up an argument um, in case law. The ICJ in the Tunisia and Libya case, where Tunisia raised the issue of historic rights over the continental which shouldn't be encroached upon by the um, uh, maritime boundary to be established by the ICJ, it's found explicitly that historical titles must enjoy respect and be preserved as they have always been by long usage. The same was repeated in the Gulf of Fonseca case a couple of years after that. The tribunal in the greece Badarna case, um, which did not specifically refer to historic rights, but it referred actually to the practice of Sweden in the greece Badarna bank, uh, vis-a-vis the activities of Norway, also found that it's a well-established principle of the law of nations that the state of things that actually exist and has existed for a long time should be changed as little as possible. So despite the fact that it didn't have any reference to historic rights, again, it's alluded actually to the fact that historic rights should be respected and preserved as they've always had, as the ICJ did in the Tunisia-Libya case. Uh, the ICJ, the Tunisia-Libya case, also had some reference to the convention, to the Law of this Convention, which was a draft at the time when the uh, tribunal uh, deliberated the case. It specifically said that the draft convention of the Third Conference does not contain any detailed provisions on the regime of historic waters. There is no definition of the concept. There is no elaboration of the juridical regime of historic waters or historic base. It referred to some reference to historic base and historical titles, Article 10 and 15 I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, And then it continued by saying, it seems clear that the matter continues to be governed by general international law, which does not provide for a single regime, or his, for historic waters or base, but only for a particular regime for each of the concrete recognized cases of historic waters and historic base. So it's clear actually from the approach of the ICJ in this respect that it refers to the um, historic rights as a regime which is regulated by customary international law and it's also a particularized regime. So, as the ICJ said in the Gulf of Fonseca, of Fonseca what's simple, oh, sorry. What's important is to investigate the particular history of the Gulf of Fonseca to discover what the regime of the Gulf is. So it's a a special, particularised regime in this respect. In the Eritrea-Yemen case, again, this relates to non-exclusive fishing rights, traditional fishing rights. I'm going to come uh, back to that when I'm going to discuss non-exclusive fishing rights. The uh, tribunal found that the traditional fishing regime is not qualified by the maritime zone specified by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. It referred to these historic rights which have been approved in favor of both parties as a process of historical consolidation. It referred to um, a servitude international falling short of territorial sovereignty. What the tribunal implied in this case, of course, was that historic rights can survive the law of the Sea Convention. Um, and the other important element of all these cases is that the um, examination of whether historic rights have been superseded or not by the Law of the Sea Convention cannot be made in abstracto. Because they are a particularized regime, which has been accepted by customary international law, this demonstrates that they might be operating in parallel. So they're complementary to the regime established by the Law of the Sea Convention, and they're not, and I think that was also alluded to by the tribunal in the Eritrea Yemen case, uh, they're not inconsistent by the Law of the Sea Convention At the parallel regime as lex specialis, which operates as exceptions to the general regime established by the Law of the Sea Convention. And that's why I think it's important to identify specific types of historical rights and historical titles, And I've done that by looking at the arguments invoked by litigants in maritime delimitation cases. So there are a number of cases I've mentioned, I've already mentioned some, but there's some other case I'm going to discuss now, which have looked at issues of historic rights within the framework of maritime delimitation. So um, the two main um, categories, and these were identified by the tribunal in the South China Sea Arbitration, was historically titles entailing sovereignty, and this has been normally referred to as historic waters, so the, uh, it requires the exercise of sovereignty in the specific waters, or historic rights short of sovereignty. Despite the fact that the tribunal identified this historic right short of sovereignty, it actually found that the... The Chinese claim, this is actually the second, the historic rights short of sovereignty, it didn't clearly identify these two um, subcategories in the historic rights short of sovereignty. So we have historic rights short of sovereignty which have a quasi-territorial or zonal impact beyond the territorial sea. And I think that's how both the Philippines but also the tribunal perceived the the Chinese claim and also non-exclusive historic rights. So starting with the first one, historical titles entailing sovereignty, I think this is the most straightforward and not controversial um, category of historical titles. The ICJ in the fisheries case referred to these waters which are treated as internal waters, but which would not have that character if it were not for the existence of historical title. So this historical title relies on the exercise of sovereignty. The state exercises, activities, activities, um, a titre de souverain, so as, a sover- as, as part of its sovereignty. And this might relate to other exercise of sovereignty as a territorial sea, which incorporates innocent passage, or as internal waters. The limitation in terms of the geographical aspect relates to the fact that these areas needs to be adjacent to the coast. So they are uh, they're, they're within the framework of the land domain of the coastal state. And uh, as the tribunal rightly said, it's clear actually that reference of historical titles within the framework of the delimitation of the Territorial Sea implies that these titles, historical titles, have, been, um, have not been superseded by the Law of the Sea Convention, have been preserved explicitly by the Law of the Sea Convention. And these are historical titles referring to sovereignty. Historical rights, short of sovereignty, but with a quasi-territorial or zonal impact are more controversial. Um, They relate to the exclusive exercise of sovereign rights. So they don't relate to the exercise of sovereignty, because that would refer actually to the the historical titles we mentioned before. But at the same time, the coastal state exercises exclusively to the exclusion of others, and it excludes others actually from the exploitation of resources, fishing, or exploitation of um, non-living resources on the continental shelf, um, as sovereign rights, as jurisdiction. And this can be identified by the fact that they have been invoked by litigants within the framework of maritime delimitation. For example, in the Tunisia-Libya case, Tunisia's argument um, related to the acquisition of historic rights over a substantial area of the seabed and this was based on long established interests and activities of its population in exploiting the fisheries of the beds and waters of the Mediterranean off its coast. This related actually to the continental shelf. The tribunal, the, the court, the ICJ, as I mentioned at the beginning, generally found that historic la- rights should be respected, and that was a general comment it made, but it didn't examine the validity of the historical rights um, invoked by Tunisia because the maritime boundary it found that the maritime boundary did not encroach upon this right. So in a way, indirectly, as Kolb says, it accepted this historic right but without really examining it because it found that the the, the, the maritime boundary did not encroach about these rights. But what we can see actually from Tunisia's argument is that it refers to um, these histori- historic rights related actually to the living and non- mainly the living resources on the continental shelf. This was about sponge fishing and sed- sedentary species. In the Qatar-Bahrain case, again, Bahrain raised the issue of uh, its activities, mainly purling, on the continental shelf in the banks and argued that these, areas should be attributed to it and should not be encroached by the maritime boundary. The ICJ examined this claim but it found that there was no evidence of exclusive activities. It found that fishermen from all neighbouring countries were engaged in pearling activities in the bank. So what was missing in this case was the element of exclusivity. So there was no exclusive exercise of sovereign rights. But the ICJ also made the following comments which i think is important in terms actually of the nature of this type of rights so even if it had found that this activity was exclusively performed by bahrain this activity seems in any event never to have led to the recognition of exclusive quasi-territorial rights to the fishing grounds themselves or to the super adjacent waters so it accepted actually that these kind of rights might exist in the Law of the Sea, despite the fact that the facts of the specific case in terms of the activities of Bahrain, even if they were exclusive, did not lead to the recognition of these rights. So what we can see actually in terms of the criteria for the establishment of this type of rights, exclusivity is important, but also the performance of only one activity might not be enough to um, lead to the recognition of these exclusive quasi-territorial rights. Also, I think it also implied that some kind of animus domini is required, not of the sense of a sovereignty, as we saw actually with historical titles, but some kind of om- animus domini, the fact that these waters are exclusively, um, exclusively pertain to the coastal states um, claiming them. In the Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados arbitration, again, Barbados' argument related to the maritime delimitation that the maritime delimitation should take into account a centuries old history of artisanal fishing. The argument by Trinidad and Tobago is really, really interesting, again, in terms of identifying what states think about this type of rights. So, Trinidad and Tobago found that recent decisions suggested that recent decisions have suggested that historic activity, whether in the form of fishing activities or other forms of resource exploitation, could be relevant to maritime delimitation, but only if they led to, or were bound up with, some form of recognition of territorial rights. So again, issues regarding exclusivity, and these rights over either the, um, the waters or the continental shelf need to be claimed on an exclusive basis in order to have some impact on the delimitation of the various maritime zones. The tribunal in this case found that there was no evidence of historic fishing rights. What was missing was historicity. The, um, the fishermen performed these activities in the 70s, so the, the historical element was missing, and they didn't really examine these concepts. The Gulf of Maine case is a very interesting case. First of all, because historic rights were not invoked by the United States. But this case has been used both in literature, but it was also used by the tribunal in the South China Sea Arbitration to demonstrate that any historic rights, pre-established historic rights, have been superseded by the Law of the Sea Convention. The United States argued that fishing and other maritime activities were a major relevant circumstance for the purpose of reaching an equitable solution to the delimitation prob- uh, problem. The ICJ chamber uh, acknowledged that the United States have not invoked historic rights, but it found that the argument by the United States resembles to an extent the existence of fishing, historic fishing rights. But what it found was that in the area that the United States was performing these activities, it was as part of the freedom of the high seas and other states were also performing these activities, so there was no exclusivity. What the United States might have acquired at that time was an absolute predominance, and this preferential situation, which was not on the base of exclusivity, was did not continue following the adoption of the Lawless Convention. So it didn't make any arguments related to the relationship between the Lawless Convention and pre-established rights, but it found that in the specific facts that it had before it. There was no exclusive exercise of fishing activities, but they were only part of the um, high seas. Sorry. What can be, uh, what can we conclude from all these cases? I think what can be concluded was that the ICJ and tribunals discussed historic rights without raising the issue to what extent they have been superseded generally by the law of the sea convention. So it does demonstrate that the ICJ and those tribunals have engaged with the debate about the existence of historic rights beyond the territorial sea, which might have a zonal impact, um, might be quasi-territorial rights beyond the territorial sea. The question that arises in this respect, though, is to what extent these rights might exist beyond, the, uh, beyond maritime delimitation. All the cases I've mentioned and all the instances that states have invoked this type of rights was within the framework of maritime delimitation. Despite the fact that there is no argument apart from China's claim uh, for a um, a historic right, a quasi-territorial historic right with a zonal impact beyond the territorial same, I think the approach of the states can demonstrate, and this is an argument made by Kolb, Robert Kolb, when he was was examining the Tunisia-Libya case, but also the Greece-Badarna arbitration, that this was not rights which were taken as relevant circumstances for the delimitation of the maritime zone, but they were prescriptive rights. So which again demonstrates actually that these prescriptive rights might exist even beyond the framework of maritime delimitation. So the um, second category of historic rights short of sovereignty that I've identified that has also been discussed by the tribunal was non-exclusive historic rights. These relate to activities performed in a non-exclusive way. So this coastal state, the state does not exclude other states from the maritime zone. They do not have a zonal impact, and therefore would be recognized in the maritime zones of other states. And these mainly have been referred to, and the tribunal also um, acknowledges that, with respect to fishing rights or even passage rights in the maritime zones of other states. this has been clearly supported, and this is the main case where the issue of non-exclusive fishing rights has been raised by the tribunal in the Eritrea-Yemen case. So the Eritrea-Yemen case, as I mentioned before, they referred to these historic rights. Which have been accrued in favor of both parties through a process of historical consolidation, a servitude international. They're falling short of territorial sovereignty. They relate actually to certain aspects of the res communis, which have been uh, um, in the area for many centuries, and the seas actually were traditionally open to fishermen of both states. So these relate actually to free access, they're not shared rights. The um, tribunal clarified that. They relate actually to the regime of free access and the fact that uh, fishermen of both Eritrea and Yemen can enjoy access to this, um, the fishing grounds um, on the basis of this historical consolidation. How does this relate to the South China Sea arbitration? The tribunal did not discuss these non-exclusive traditional fishing rights within the framework of Submission 1 and 2. It had already found that any pre-existing historic rights have been superseded by the Law of the Sea Convention. But then it came back to the issue of these traditional fishing rights within the framework of Submission 10 of the Philippines. So Philippines had asked the court to find that China has unlawfully prevented the uh, Philippine fishermen from pursuing their livelihoods by interfering with traditional fishing activities at Scarborough Shoal. And you can see actually where Scarborough shoal is. It's here just off the coast of the Philippines and just by the Spratly Islands, you cannot see them, the Spratly Islands are here, a bit lower, and this is Scarborough Shoal. The sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal is disputed between three states, two states states and a half, uh, China, Taiwan, and uh, and the Philippines. Um, so the uh, issues of sovereignty were outside the jurisdiction of the um, arbitral tribunal. So the Philippines could not really argue that the activities of China with respect to interfering <laughs> interfering with um, historic right with uh, the, the rights of the fishermen in the um, territorial sea of Scarborough Shoal was an infringement of its sovereignty because the sovereignty issue was open. So in a way, it rephrased, in order to evade, in order to circumvent the issue of jurisdiction, it rephrased the um, the, the question, and then it said actually that um, the Philippine fishermen, they have been enjoying traditional fishing activities for a very long time, and China's uh, interference with these activities was a violation of international law. And in order to distinguish between what has been perceived as historic rights and what it's referred to as traditional or artisanal fishing rights, and this is exactly what the Philippines uh, had done in order to avoid this inconsistency in their argument with respect to the non supersession of historic rights but the existence of traditional fishing rights, they didn't refer actually to them as historic rights, but they referred to the law applicable to traditional fishing. So it found that these traditional artisanal fishing rights, they were not rights which belong to the state, but there were private rights akin to a property, and you can see that they've, in, in this quote actually they've identified a number of issues with respect to the nature of these rights, that they're private rights, with respect to the beneficiaries, but also the qualitative issues with respect to the scope and the content. They belong to uh, the community, the fishermen, who have been fishing for a very long time on the base of this long-standing practice, and they're also um, different from any kind of other historic rights, especially industrial fishing, because they derive from uh, traditional practices. Um, and they specifically refer to the Eritrea-Yemen case and, and a specific quote in that case that the, with respect to the non-application of the Western legal fiction, whereby all legal rights, even those in reality held by individual, individuals were deemed to be those of the state. So and again, it referred to that in order to demonstrate that these historic, traditional rights, they were not private rights, but they were rights actually belonging to individuals. This is a bit problematic, because indeed the Be Yemen arbitration refers and incorporates this comment, but they also refer to certain historic rights which accrued in favor of both parties. And then it referred to this right entitled the fishermen of both states to engage in artisanal fishing. So in in contrary to what the tribunal found in terms of private rights, I think these are more or less hybrid rights. So they belong to the states for the benefit of its nationals, but also to these nationals themselves. And if we, uh, looking at literature with respect to historic, non-exclusive historic fishing rights, the argument was that one of the requirements was that the practice is by the um, individual fishermen and without clear involvement of the government. So, in contrast to historical titles or historic rights short of sovereignty with a zonal impact, the uh, contribution of the state with respect to the development of these rights was not necessary. So, it, again, that's why I think that these are hybrid rights. Um, sorry. Um, with respect to the content and the scope of these rights these, uh, these were linked with the rights of local people to pursue their livelihood and this is a really interesting point because it has been raised by um, um, states within the framework of maritime delimitation and especially it was accepted in one case, the Yamegen case where the, the dependence of the local, of the local population with respect to fishing resources in terms of their livelihood had an impact on the maritime delimitation. The um, exercise, and another interesting element in that respect, because I think the tribunal took a bit of a human-centric view of the law of the sea. Um, it has been raised, for example, by Barbados in the Trinitas and Tobago and Barbados case, within the framework of also human rights. Barbados invoked human rights with respect, actually, to the right of fishermen to pursue their livelihood with respect, actually, to the maritime delimitation. The exercise relates to the tradition and customs of the community, so there is a qualitative element related to the fishing gear, the customs, and the traditions of a community. So there is a clear contrast actually with industrial fishing. This artisanal fishing is simply carried out on a small scale using fishing methods, etc. So again, these are elements that the tribunal identified, but at the same time there was lots of and uh, un- um ambiguity in terms of the scope in terms of the beneficiaries but there's some interesting elements in that in terms of traditional fishing rights what i find problematic was that the tribunal accepted that these traditional fishing rights only have been preserved in the territorial sea and not in other maritime zones and it justified that by looking at the law reflecting the circumstances of the creation of the az and the creation the expansion of the length of the breadth of the territorial sea. It's found that under the law existing prior to the exclusive economic zone, the expansion of jurisdiction was equivalent to the adjustment of a boundary, or it's in sovereignty, and therefore acquired rights were preserved. I think this is problematic. Before the adoption of the Law of the Sea Convention, the breadth of the territorial sea was elusive. So it was only uh, solidified in the third conference on the Law of Below the Sea to 12 nautical mines. Traditional fishing rights was undertaken in areas regardless of the boundaries adopted and consolidated later, so regardless of any legal developments. And that's the whole idea, actually, of traditional fishing rights. And this was the approach of the Eritrea Yemen Arbitration Tribunal that is found that these fishing rights Continue to exist regardless of the maritime zones and then even beyond the territorial sea. The tribunal in the South Sudanese arbitration was aware of this uh, judgment, and what it tried to do, it tried to distinguish. The, it tried to distinguish the Eritrea-Yemen arbitration from the arbitration that it had before it. It found that the Eritrea-Yemen case was not an arbitration on, under Annex Seven. And so it was not bound by Article 293, which relates actually to the applicable law, the fact actually that the tribunal cannot apply the law that's inconsistent with the law of this convention. It referred to the special agreement, bilateral agreement that established the jurisdiction of the tribunal in the Eritrea Yemen case, and it said that the tribunal was asked to apply the law of this convention, but also any other pertinent factor, and that's what the tribunal did. I think this is problematic. Of course, yes, this is right. It was not um, under the compulsory jurisdiction. It was on the base of the bilateral agreement. But at the same time, when the parties ask the tribunal to apply any pertinent factor, of course, they wouldn't really refer to uh, rules which are incompatible with the law of this convention. So when states actually ask a tribunal to apply the law of this convention, it doesn't actually mean that they can apply also rules that are consistent, as the tribunal found in the first... Uh, and the second submission, but also in this part, with respect to the law of the sea convention um, the main the key argument that this has been raised, and I think that was the, uh, it has been raised in literature as um Uh, an important argument with respect to the EZs and the um, non-preservation of any kind of historic rights or historic fishing rights within the the EZ is Article 62, Paragraph 3, that refers to the access of other states to the surplus that they need to take into account in terms of harvesting part of the surplus. The need to minimise economic dislocation of states whose nationals have habitually fished in the zone. You see, there is no mention to historic rights here, there is no mention to traditional rights, only to uh, states whose nationals have habitually faced in the zone. And the tribunal found actually that this is evidence of the fact that any previous facing rights in the EEZ have been um, superseded. And again I think this is problematic. Um, If we examine the travel preparatoire but also the historical development of the EEZ but also the territorial sea, we see some commonalities. For example, with respect to the expansion of the territorial sea to 12 nautical miles in the second conference of the Law of the Sea, there was a debate to what extent pre-established fishing practices of third states should also continue. And the, uh, there was reference in this debate to the habitual fishing of third states. So the expansion of the territorial sea, again, took into account the fact that people were fishing in this area. And something that the tribunal has not did not examine was why... States, White thought actually that states agreed to have more restrictions on their sovereignty in the territorial sea, in the form of fishing rights or historic traditional fishing rights, and not in the EZ, which only incorporates sovereign rights and jurisdictions. So again, there is a bit of inconsistency there. Um, What I think is that the traditional fishing rights, according to the dictum of the tribunal in the Eritrea-Yemen case, should apply in the maritime zones, regardless of the um, limits of the zones adopted by the law of this Convention, on the basis of the particularities of the area and the activities performed in the area. Um, the main argument by the Philippines, and it was mentioned also by the Tribunal, was that the different regime relates to Article 2, Paragraph 3. Article 2, Paragraph 3 of the Law of the sea Convention um, states that the sovereignty over the territorial sea is exercised subject to this Convention and to other rules of international law. This provision was uh, transferred verbatim uh, from the Geneva Convention on the Territorial Sea, and it mainly referred to various limitations to the exercise of sovereignty. Um, and how states actually should exercise sovereignty within the territorial state. There was no mention to other historic rights or anything like that. And if we see Article 58, Paragraph 2 of the Law of the Sea Convention, there is also reference to the application of pertinent rules of international law to the exclusive economic zone, as long as they are not incompatible with this part. So again, it doesn't mean actually that the Law of the Sea Convention does not allow the application of other rules within the framework of its operation. Finally, very, very briefly, I still have a bit of time, Um, with respect to the requirements, it made some comments about the establishment of historic rights. It um, acknowledged and adopted the uh, conditions um, incorporated in the United Nations study on historic rights in 1962 with respect to the continuous exercise of the claimed right by the state asserting the claim and um, acquiescence on the part of the affected states. So I think this is quite straightforward. This is a really interesting comment that the tribunal made, that the scope of the claim to historic rights depends upon the scope of the acts that are carried out as the exercise of the claimed right. And I think that also relates to the the point I was trying to make at the beginning with respect actually to the particularised regime. The fact actually that it's the, the, the scope and the content of the activities performed by states that's going to determine the outcome of the historic rights established via this practice, and of course, the acquiescence of other states. It also made some rather controver- uh, contro- uncontroversial argument with respect to the fact that when the um, activities are performed within the framework of freedom of the high seas, this cannot lead to historical titles, and this is quite straightforward. Of course, this was referenced actually to the fact that in the South China Sea, fishermen from all literal states have been fishing there freely for many, many years. Um, it also, of course, this is this is true, and this reflects also the bad dictum of the ISIS in the Gulf of Maine case. But the exceptions are whether there is exclusive use again, that needs to be taken into account, or the, whether there might be a shared regime, as was in the Eritrea Yemen case. And the final point I would like to discuss is the scope and nature of the uh, optional exception to the uh, compulsory jurisdiction of the dispute settlement mechanism of the Law convention within the framework of Article 298 and in the light of the uh, declaration made by China with respect to this exception. Um, Most scholars before the uh, tribunal discussed this case thought that this was the key argument by China. The fact actually that it has raised historical titles and because, histo- because historical titles are excluded from the compulsory jurisdiction of the tribunal, the tribunal will find that it has no jurisdiction. They thought actually was the strongest argument by um, China. The tribunal had different ideas. What, uh, f- uh, first of all, it um, rejected... The argument by the Philippines that this has a really narrow scope, only referring to sea boundary delimitations. You see these, those there in the English version of this um, article. But it found actually that this this provision does not only relate to sea boundary delimitations, but also disputes related to historic base and or titles. And the problem was the concept of historical titles. So we have the historical titles, and what the tribunal. Mm-hmm. Um, found that the claim by China was historic rights short of sovereignty. And it found by doing this narrow interpretation that historical titles relate to property, relate to sovereignty. So reference actually to historical titles in the Law of the Sea Convention, they did a brief overview of the incorporation of historical titles in this provision, relates to sovereignty. Since China has not claimed sovereignty of a, within the nine dash line in the South China Sea, but only historic rights, short of sovereignty. Therefore, this is not within the framework of the um, optional exception. Um, this argument is problematic in two ways. First of all, the concept of historical titles, especially when it was adopted by the Law of the sea Convention, was not clearly defined. The United Nations study on historic right, on historical titles used both historical titles and historic rights without really clarifying the meaning interchangeably. So again, there was quite a lot of confusion with respect to what historical titles was referring to, especially when the provision was adopted. So this is the distinction made by the tribunal was just a semantic difference and not related actually to um, the actual concepts. But I think also doing a contextual interpretation of these provisions, um, despite the fact that historic rights, non-exclusive historic rights, with respect to fishing rights, with respect to passage rights, might not be included in this provision in the sense actually that they don't raise an issue of entitlement, they don't have a zonal impact in terms of the maritime zones and therefore might not be referring actually to historical titles, but historic rights short of sovereignty, they do have a zonal impact, they do create quasi-territorial rights so it would be a contradictory outcome if historical titles were excluded but not historic rights which have a quasi-territorial impact and they also create um, entitlement to maritime zones. And just to finish, I think what the tribunal did, and we we'll see actually how much of what the tribunal said will survive, especially thinking that China has not accepted the um, tribunal jurisdiction and the awards, it significant, significantly restricted the scope and contemporary relevance of historical claims, and to an extent, this is understandable because excessive claims to maritime zones might destabilize the regulatory regime of the Law of the Sea Convention. So the tribunal was really protective of the integrity of the Law of the Sea Convention and especially of the jurisdictional framework that was, were, were solidified in the Convention. But at the same time, we need to take into account the, nation, the, the nature and rationale of historic rights, this preservation of stability. That it's also included in the concept of historic rights, the undisturbed, long-established situation, and the fact, actually, that we need to take into account particular circumstances and realities of a maritime area. Because historic rights are, are an exception to general rules related to maritime jurisdiction, they have a high threshold of evidence. And this is the reason why, in all the cases that I mentioned, the tribunals have not found on the basis of the fact that historic rights had been established. So again we have the high threshold, but at the same time we cannot consider the preservation of historic rights in abstracto vis-a-vis the law of the sea convention. What we need to discuss and examine is the specific particularities of its historic claims in order to ascertain what's the relationship between these claims and the law of the sea convention. I think that's my last slide. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take any questions that you might have. Thank you